Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioH Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular costs of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioH. Joining us today is Dr. Mitchell Lee, CEO and co-founder of Aura Biomedical, a Seattle-based biotech company devoted to developing broadly applicable small molecule therapeutics that extend lifespan and delay chronic illness. Prior to co-founding Aura, Dr. Lee had amply demonstrated his commitment to the aging field by serving as the founding chair of the trainee chapter of the American Aging Association and serving on that organization's executive committee and board of directors. During that time, he also founded AGE's GeroScience Peer Review Training Program. Aura is a relatively new company, but I find their approach interesting, and I think our listeners will as well. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Aura has enough co-founders to field a basketball team, including some well-known figures in longevity science. Matt Caberline, who's been on the show in his capacity as co-director of the Dog Longevity Project, and Brian Kennedy, a former CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. He actually held that position when I was a postdoc there. So let's start off by you telling us how the company came together. So the company started up really out of a, a conversation between Matt and I that then kind of grew as we went. So I was at a point in time in my career as a postdoc where I was figuring out what the next steps were for me. I was seeing some misalignment in academia towards my passion for drug hunting and the funding landscape. And at the same time, seeing this boom in enthusiasm and resources taking hold on the longevity biotech side in the private sector. So I had a conversation with Matt, who is my mentor, to kind of break the news to him that I wasn't going to follow in his footsteps as an academic. And we began chatting. And, you know, at that point, uh, the Wormbot technology was just coming online. And he mentioned that it was far enough along that he was considering spinning out a company based around it. And I jumped at the opportunity. So that was kind of how it formed. There were some other conversations that then happened between Brian or other co-founders, John Gruber, and the technology masterminds behind the Wormbot AI, which is our CTO, Ben Blue, and uh, Dr. Jason Pitt, who originally developed the robotics itself. So the conversation started with you saying to Matt, I'm not going to follow in your footsteps. And he basically said, let's walk together for a little while longer. Absolutely. That happens quite often when you have a conversation with Matt. You know, I've never walked into a room with Matt, had a question for him, and I've never walked out with anything less than a better idea. I love talking to Matt. He's absolutely one of my favorite people in the field, so I couldn't agree with you more. So you said an interesting word, Wormbot, which we are going to come back to later, I promise. But before that, a little bit more background. How did you come up with the name Aura? What does it mean? Aura is, uh, it's roughly translated as healthy or alive in the indigenous language of the people of Rapa Nui or Easter Island. So for you and your listeners know, Rapa Nui is the home of rapamycin. So the best gold standard right now in a small molecule therapeutic that extends lifespan. So we took inspiration from rapamycin and that kind of story of where it was found. Oh, that's really cool. Okay, let's dive into what the company is actually doing. The core approach, as I understand it, is a screening approach. You're looking for compounds that extend survival and health in a nearly but not quite microscopic roundworm called C. elegans. Is that about right? Yes. Our approach is large-scale screening. What really sets us apart is that we do 
phenotypic screening, like you said, in live animals. So that's a departure from a lot of different approaches that are more target focused. So what we do is really start where it find the intervention, see how they impact lifespan and health span, and then move forward from there to find and understand the targets and mechanisms associated. That's kind of the flip side of common approaches that start with a target that is hypothesized to be important in aging, devise an assay around that to find interventions that target that mechanism. And then it's typically, you know, sometimes years and millions of dollars later before the really important question is asked, does it actually work? Does it actually improve lifespan or health span or mitigate a disease process? At BioAge, we couldn't agree with you more. One of the things we like about looking at function first is it allows us to be hypothesis agnostic. When you go in with a specific target or mechanism in mind, you're essentially limited by the findings other people have made in the past. If you instead look at, say, what extends the lifespan of a worm or what are the molecular features of the most successful human agers, you're allowed to discover new things, for one thing, and you're really not limited. It's the entire scope of the molecular basis of longevity is open to you. Absolutely. So, okay, we've all heard of lab mice, but lab worms? Just to play the role of a skeptic who hasn't picked up a scientific journal for the last 30 years, what can a worm teach us about aging? And maybe along the way, you can explain why it's better to use worms than something like mice with a little less evolutionary distance from human beings. That's a, a question that we commonly get is, you know, we study these things that look so different from a human. What can you possibly learn about aging using something like that for discovery? Well, aging, if you think about it, it's really driven first and foremost by molecular and cellular changes. So at the molecular and cellular level, a worm cell and a mammal cell are very similar to each other. They have the same kind of general problems. They have to take in nutrients, convert that into the cellular building blocks. That's an imperfect process. It generates waste, and that waste has to be resolved in some kind of way. When you look at a worm cell compared to a human cell, they actually operate in much the same way. So that actually allows us to identify new targets and features of aging using the worm that can then translate into male. Okay. Worm cells and human cells have more in common than they have differences. And I'm guessing it's easier to screen functional outcomes, phenotypes, and lifespan of a thousand worms than a thousand mice. In terms of the advantages from a screening standpoint, you know, the worms have a much shorter lifespan, so you can screen a whole population in under a month for lifespan changes. In addition to lifespan, you can look at things associated with movement and behavior, so you can get a much stronger feel for not just how an intervention impacts lifespan, but how it impacts health span. And the worm itself, you know, has been well studied in research for about 50 years now. So there's a wealth of tools to get a mechanism and different well-established age-associated and other disease models that you can then extend interventions that you identify to, to better understand exactly how we utilize a new longevity therapeutic. How is the work actually performed? You've been talking about these phenotypic and functional readouts. You've been talking about lifespan. So I guess what I'm inviting you to do is tell us about the WormBot, Mitch. The WormBot is an image capture platform. What it does is it takes pictures and videos of individual C. elegans population. 
a given worm bot can look at over 100 populations in parallel and then measure things associated with movement, behavior, and survival. So image capture is the robotic side, and then we have a machine learning approach that allows us to detect those phenotypes, like lifespan, behavior, and how those change with age. Kind of at the cutting edge of what we're doing on that level, we're actually compiling numerous different health and age-associated phenotypes that are allowing us to put together what we call health span plots. So things that you can look at behavior and changes of the animals with age, and it actually predicts the age of those animals. And then you can uh, look at how those drugs actually impact and change that established age measure. You seed the worms on the plate and the Wormbot camera takes a series of pictures of them or are they movies? Yeah, they're pictures of each population through time. You can also take short movies during that time as well. But overall, through the course of the lifespan, you take pictures and then you stitch those pictures together to create one time-lapse set of images. And from there, you can look and see the animals that are moving and see when death events occur. So the Wormbot can basically watch the worms and see how they're doing, not only how long they live, but how well they're doing while they live. And if there's some kind of an intervention going on, like a chemical in the plate, the lifespan curve will change and that tells you whether or not the chemical has an effect on lifespan. Yeah, each one of the populations of worms that we study is about 25 animals. They're drug-treated, so we can add in the drug whenever we'd like to. You know, if we want to look at our initial screening, we have the drug on the plate before the worms go in. But if we want to look at things associated with, you know, later life and drug treatment, we can add those drugs later as well. So we have a lot of flexibility, but it's ultimately putting drugs on populations, and then measuring lifespan relative to untreated populations. Presumably, there are compounds that are already known to extend lifespan in worms. And in fact, you mentioned one earlier in our conversation. And I'm guessing that those compounds are used as your positive controls in all of your screens. Like, do you always run rapamycin on the same batch as a bunch of experimental drugs? We have different longevity-associated compounds. So yeah, there's quite a few of them that have already been identified to extend lifespan in worms. Those are positive controls that we use. We also actually utilize those to find novel drug synergy. So a new intervention that we identify, we test in conjunction with each of those different known longevity interventions to find those different combinations that create a very robust extension of lifespan. And do those combination experiments also maybe tell you whether a given new compound is acting via the same or a different pathway than a known compound? Yeah, for the most part, you can start to glean out some of that information. So if you get a strong drug synergy, that could suggest that it's actually hitting two different pathways instead of getting, you know, just more of an incremental additive effect that would suggest that you're really just kind of targeting that same mechanism just a, and hitting it just a little bit harder. You said that sometimes you test just single compounds and sometimes you test compounds in combination. But the combination experiments are situations in which you've already shown that a new compound on its own has some effect on lifespan or health span, right? Yeah, that's typically our first pass. We do unbiased screening across drug libraries, find things that impact lifespan with single compounds, and then do those combination tests. 
We can also do the other strategy of taking a known intervention and then screening that in compound uh, in conjunction with different drug libraries as well. Okay, so some of the initial screens are actually done two compounds at a time. One known beneficial compound and compounds from a library. That was actually one of our very first screens was we were in a Alzheimer's disease model that undergoes this rapid onset paralysis. Metformin suppresses that paralysis in that mutant background. So we wanted to look and see if there were other FDA-approved compounds that synergize with metformin to even further delay them. And in that screen, we actually found numerous different interventions that synergize to both delay that paralysis, but also some that actually negatively interacted with each other and actually hastened the paralysis. So really interesting drug dynamics in, in those combination studies. Your mention of an Alzheimer's model answers in part a question that I was about to ask, which is, are you always testing wild-type worms or do you sometimes use mutants of various kinds? Yeah, we use both. We do a lot of screening and normative aging models just to find those new interventions that extend lifespan and otherwise healthy animals. We can leverage the different rare and age-associated disease models that exist to then basically give ourselves pathways to indications that can lead us towards, you know, how we actually go down the road for FDA trials or ultimately translate these interventions for human and other animal use. You mentioned about given wormbot batch is like a hundred different populations. What is the throughput of a single wormbot setup? And I guess what I'm more interested in knowing is what's the aspirational throughput of Aura Biomedical? Like how many molecules do you ultimately plan to screen? That's been something really exciting since we launched our independent operation is figuring out all the different ways that we can optimize and really scale and multiplex on a given run. So we run them in batches of about 120 or so populations at a time, but we can run multiple batches per worm bot per day. Our V1 robot army has five worm bots in it right now. And we can do about 4,000 compounds in parallel per month. As we're scaling up and seeing the future of this, it's really within reach for us to screen a million interventions within three years. And so that's a goal we've been starting to promote kind of broadly in the community. We call it the Million Molecule Challenge. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really catchy. On this scientific and commercial communications angle, though, when you start talking to the general public, don't call it a robot army. <laughs> we went back and forth about this, but it tends to fall into some kind of military metaphor. I like a fleet. Matt has preferred the army language. We go back and forth. <laughs> sure. I mean, maybe you should just lean into it and just have like the Terminator be your spokesperson. <laughs> nice. So all of our worm bots, uh, so the guys are really nice to me. They let me name all of the worm bots. So they all have Marvel character names. So maybe the whole group will just call them like the Avengers or something. That definitely sounds public friendly. So back to the substance here. A million molecule challenge sounds ambitious. Where do these compounds come from? Are they libraries of approved drugs? Are they combinatorial libraries that you synthesize somewhere or something else entirely? The beauty of being able to do such large throughput is that we can take advantage of many different kinds of drug libraries. So one set are natural products, things that have accelerated pathways to market. They could be used in nutraceuticals or cosmetics. 
Another set of drugs that we look at are FDA or otherwise regulatory approved compounds. Those give us accelerated pathways through clinical trials, you know, thinking about drug repurposing strategies. But we're really interested in those, particularly in the context of rare diseases. So, and then the third one is custom synthesis and novel small molecule libraries. These are things that you can purchase or get synthesized based on any kind of specifications that you have. And the beauty of those is that it gets you to the point of identifying brand new molecules, brand new chemistry that are associated with longevity. I'm going to ask you to unpack something you just said. You said that if you're using libraries of FDA-approved compounds, that accelerates progress towards clinical trials. I think I know what you mean. Could you just expand on it so we can all make sure that we understand? An FDA-approved compound has already went through the process of toxicology. You understand how the general safety of it is in humans, and it's shown some efficacy for some disease or some other indication. So they've been de-risked in a certain kind of way. You can repurpose those compounds or find new ways to use those interventions in different diseases. And by doing so, you have an accelerated pathway through those safety trials and other kind of basic preclinical research because all of that already exists and is known. In the context of rare diseases, what's really great about this is that finding interventions that can help out in the context of those diseases, there's different incentives that the government has in place. So, you know, maybe getting patents around those can be a little bit of a challenge, but from a commercial standpoint, you can actually get a it's called exclusivity in market. So with an existing drug that's already FDA approved, if you find a rare disease that it works in, you can actually be the only group that can use that compound for that indication for a, a defined period. Thank you. Now, I have another question that's related to what you just said, which is, so suppose that you have a compound or a combination of compound that shifts the lifespan curve in your worms. Can you Describe the path from there to a rare disease indication. Would you first have to figure out the target of the compound? Would you have to do some other kind of preclinical validation? How would you get from that worm looks fantastic to I'm going to treat this orphan or rare disease? Our strategy for that, that is typically going through FDA-approved compounds, so there's already some understanding about mechanisms and targets associated with that compound. We can validate those using different kind of omics approaches, make sure that we see those same kind of signatures in mammals and humans. And then what we do is we have a panel of rare disease mutants that we then test our interventions across. And for each one of those where we see that efficacy, We can then do some omics level follow-up, just make sure those targets are changing in the ways that we would expect. But then those give us those different indications that we can further pursue. Then from there, you know, you aim at some cell culture studies to validate it in mammalian systems. If there's a mouse model or some other good mammal system that recapitulates that rare disease, then you can go and test in those models. Roughly how big is your rare disease panel? Right now, we're continuing to grow it, but we see the final disease panel being about 20 to 30. That answers the question, why not just screen the rare disease panel directly if that's what you want to develop? But I understand that a 20 to 30 fold increase in the number of screens you would have to do for every molecule might be 
economically or logistically hard. It's a little bit of a missing piece for me. Like, why do you believe, why does Aura Biomedical believe that a primary screen for lifespan and health span in presumably wild type worms is likely to enrich for molecules that will be successful in secondary screens in your rare disease panel? That's a great question. And that really is just kind of a, how we view the geroscience theory that's associated with the biology of aging. If you are finding interventions that target those fundamental drivers of aging, you expect those to have multiple different impacts on, you know, not just age-associated diseases, but the more we test different longevity interventions, we see that they have all kinds of different impacts and non-age-associated disease models. You know, I think a lot about the Lee syndrome model. So it's a, a mouse model of juvenile mitochondrial and rapamycin nearly triples the lifespan of those animals that recapitulate that disease. Kidding. Yeah. So it's really just taking that geroscience theory seriously and saying that if it impacts aging, it's likely to have impacts across many different disease states, even ones that we wouldn't necessarily think about as being age-related. Thank you so much. I'm glad that we went down this rabbit hole, or I guess wormhole together, <laughs> because I was very curious about this connection. And I'm so satisfied that your answer involves a theme that comes up again and again when we talk about lifespan and health span extension, which is the idea that true aging drugs will prevent multiple morbidities or treat multiple morbidities because aging is the primary risk factor for many diseases, even if they are apparently mechanistically distinct. So if you have something that you know is beneficial from the standpoint of lifespan, health span, longevity, you have a strong prior that it's going to be beneficial in a variety of different tissue and organ systems. And I think it's particularly powerful, the idea that you might even find that it's beneficial, as in the example you just gave, for diseases that are not thought to be age-related at all. That's something that's so interesting and fascinating about the science of aging and age-related interventions. It's just how broadly utilizable they seem to be. It almost feels too good to be true, but we have evidence. We know how they work. We've seen examples of how this plays out with things like rapamycin. So it's, it's really incredible type of therapeutic benefits that can be had through these kind of interventions. It sounds like rare disease is a major direction for you, but is it the only direction? No, not at all. So rare disease is one, age-associated diseases and figuring out how to aim longevity interventions towards the clinic for FDA trials is another, both for humans and other large mammals. The other side that we look at is going direct to consumer. So finding natural products and generally recognized as safe molecules figuring out different formulations that we can put together that promote healthy longevity that can then go into strong science-backed nutraceuticals or cosmetics. Interesting. The thing about a natural product is that you can sell it to people without having to go through FDA approval, which is great because FDA approval is a long, arduous, and expensive process. If I could play devil's advocate for a second, one of the issues with natural products is that, you know, modulo like a creative formulation, you can't really own a natural product and there's no incentive for the sponsor or the manufacturer to ever go through the whole phase one, phase two, phase three process 
and demonstrate efficacy in the rigorous way that at least we'd like to believe is demonstrated by a full-fledged FDA trial. So how do you as the sponsor or manufacturer achieve confidence that such a product is actually working? And how do you then convey that confidence to the consumer in a way that doesn't involve making specific claims about medicinal benefit, which my understanding is you can't do? Kind of two things to there. On the one side is just exactly what you said. The big problem with natural products is the science backing them is a variable quality and a variable kind of comfort level in terms of how much we believe these different claims. So with us, we do everything doing the most rigorous, science-backed, highest quality analyses that we can do in terms of both the worms and then validating those in either cell culture or mammalian systems. Uh, we're, we're just really starting to wrap our heads around how we aim into these spaces. And skincare products has been something that has came to the top of mind for us. That's kind of based out of what we learned about rapamycin. So topical rapamycin, it seems to delay things associated with skin senescence. It seems to improve healthy aging and skin. So thinking about how to utilize other compounds like that in the context of skincare, you have to ask what do skincare companies want in terms of the science that they utilize. And a lot of those are cell culture-based assays. So they want to look at things related to expression of extracellular matrix degrading enzymes, and they want to see some kind of functional readouts in terms of things associated with elasticity or senescence. We can do those studies very quickly and have the added bonus of saying that these are also longevity and lifespan enhancing interventions in our simple nematode systems. Ultimately, you know, it's about working out the best scientific strategy with the partners who will have, because we don't see ourselves as a direct-to-consumer company. We want to license out our formulations to those companies who will move those to market. So having a good relationship there and being able to talk with those people and, and devise the things that we can really stand behind as the highest quality science-backed formulation. The second thing that you brought up was really kind of how you protect or think about natural products. You're absolutely right. Natural products themselves can't be patented. You could potentially patent formulations, and we're thinking about those, You know, developing those kind of patents. The other thing you can do is protect them via trade secrets. So have a proprietary formulation that you develop and then work with those companies to have those formulations in their products, but the actual composition of it, we can keep as a trade secret. That actually helps me understand a couple of the business challenges and for lack of a better word, the epistemological challenges that confront you as you move forward in this space. Your mention of partners actually provides a nice transition into kind of the final set of topics I wanted to talk to you about, which is the business side. In terms of business, what's next for Aura? And, and first and foremost, this is a famously hard time to raise money as a biotech company. How's that process going? What's your funding outlook? The great thing about our operations is they have been going incredible. We moved into our new research space just a few months ago. We were quickly able to get the worm bots online, running drug screens. We've already identified novel lifespan extending interventions. 
So the next step with that is continuing to develop those and then figure out how to close those first out licensing. So we're talking to different companies, kind of understanding what they're looking for in terms of data packages that they would then feel comfortable out licensing our interventions based on. That's one side in terms of the commercial outlook. In terms of the financing outlook, we're raising right now for our seed round, and it has. It's been a very challenging to raise financing in for biotechs generally, but for longevity biotechs in particular. We're really fortunate to have some early investors who are passionate about what we do, see the value of what we're developing, and are probably going to be leading those next, that next round for us. I'm glad to hear that it's going well. You've got enthusiastic early investors. Early money is like yeast. It helps to raise the dough. But let's assume that you have plenty of money in the bank. What's your trajectory over the next few years? So in the next few years, we'll be able to grow out our version two robotics army, which is going to be 50 worm bots. That's going to allow us to screen a a million interventions within three years. And at the same time that we're doing that, we're going to be continuing development around these first interventions. So getting those first interventions developed, doing the different mammalian studies that we need to do, and then closing those first out licensing deals. So we hope within a few years that we've really close the loop in terms of our commercial hypothesis, going from discovery to out-licensing. Zooming out a bit, and this is time for our patented blue sky question toward the end of a Translating Aging interview. Thinking five, 10 years from now, let's say 10, how is the world different because of Aura Biomedical? Did we get someplace we would have gotten that we just got there a little faster? Did we get someplace we maybe wouldn't have gotten at all? It's really both. So we're going to get there faster in terms of identifing longevity interventions. You know, combing through chemical space to find these age-modulating small molecules has really lacked scientifically. And so our approach allows us to accelerate in going through that space and finding those interventions. We're going to find brand new things also. So our phenotype-based approach allows us to find new interventions and new targets that nobody would have expected would be age modulating. So we're going to get there faster and we're going to find new things. And then the third part of that is really we're going to find the new combinations and the very best, most efficacious, groundbreaking interventions. As we think about the next 10 years or the next five years, we're really in an interesting time in longevity biotech. We're at a place where The people who know the science see the promise and see the potential, but we still don't have a validation point in terms of a large mammal system reaping the benefits of a longevity intervention or showing improved lifespan. That's going to be changing in the next three to five years. As soon as that happens, there's going to be a never-before-seen boom in enthusiasm and interest and engagement and demand for longevity therapeutics. And so we really see what we're doing today as putting ourselves in the position where we're going to be able to meet that challenge in the next three to five years. I think I speak for all of us at BioAge when I should say that we share your enthusiasm and optimism. And I just want to personally wish you and the robot army the best of luck with the Million Molecule Challenge. Dr. Mitchell Lee of Aura Biomedical, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. 
Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.